This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 315th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a very talented young actor who has greatly impressed a lot of people over the last three years. First, in 2017, with a supporting turn as Sean Eckhart, the goon who planned the assault of figure skater Nancy Kerrigan 25 years ago, in Craig Gillespie's I, Tanya. Then, in 2018, with another supporting turn, this time as an inept KKK member in Spike Lee's Black Klansman, and now, in 2019, with a leading role as the title character, a hero mistaken for a villain, in Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell, for which this actor has been named the recipient of the National Board of Review's Best Breakthrough Performance Award, with other accolades possibly still to come. Paul Walter Hauser. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 33-year-old and I discussed how a conversation with Dustin Lance Black led to a part in Black's 2010 film Virginia that was big enough to pay for Hauser to move from Michigan to Hollywood almost exactly a decade ago, how his diligent preparation for auditions for I, Tanya and Black Klansmen enabled him to stand out for their directors, how, out of the blue, he learned that he might have a chance to star in a Clint Eastwood film but then had to decide on a tight deadline whether to accept a lucrative offer for a TV limited series or take his chances on the Eastwood possibility, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Paul, thank you so much for coming in. Great to see you as always, and uh, congratulations. This has been a big month, week, just probably a blur for you, huh? It's been wild, Scott. (laughs) It's been wild. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I uh, yeah no. It's been it's been like a fun year for me and a fun year for movies and just as a movie fan, it's been crazy keeping up with everything. There's so much I still have to see from Corpus Christi to Uncut Gems to you know. There's just so many different interesting projects, and then the big event movies all fall on like the same month. So Absolutely. it's uh, it's been nutty, man. It's been fun. <laughs> well, let's go back because you know on the one hand, I think people feel like they know you because in the last three consecutive years, you have been a key part of the award season, high quality films. We had I, Tanya in 2017. We had Black Klansman in 2018. And we now have Richard Jewell in 2019. But I think they know your face. They don't know your story. So let's let's go back. I guess it starts in Michigan with a pretty faith-centric 
family, right? You're like one of the first in generations to not be a a minister, right? Right, right. Yeah, my dad is a uh, fifth generation Lutheran pastor. The crazy story is that I guess his, my dad's like great, great, great grandfather or something was a rabbi and he left Czechoslovakia to convert people to Judaism in America. And while staying with a host family here where, you know, you're crashing for free like a foreign exchange student, uh, he got converted to Christianity. Uh, so it changed the course of the family a little right. bit. Um, although it's just, it's just believing in one more book. We still yeah. both got the old Testament, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, my brother is now a sixth generation pastor and the women in my family are, uh, over the top, incredible stay at home moms. Mm-hmm. And, and this is just something I always wanted to do. I always, you know, I took to people like Robin Williams and Jim Carrey, and I, I always got to give credit to Jim Varney who did those earnest movies that, those were like really important movies to me as a kid. And uh, the Instagram videos I now do where I'll be shirtless waking up in bed at my apartment in Silver Lake doing a weirdo character. Like that totally spiritually traces back to watching Jim Varney do Ernest, you know, talking to the camera and stuff. Well, I just got a, a free, amazing performance coming up the elevator with you every floor. Do you want to you want to give a little uh, I summary? A, I, I love elevators because people are stuck with each other, which should happen more often. This country is so divided at it's disgusting. Right, right. Uh, so, like, I love saying awkward shit in elevators to make people feel weird. So, yeah. I think floor one that we were going up, <laughs> I think I said something like, it's dead quiet. And I go, so anyways, as I was saying about my divorce, and then the door opened. <laughs> the next floor, I was like, anyways, so they got the culture test back, the lesion. They don't know the origin, but they know it's a lesion. Then the next floor up, I was like, anyway, and Brandon, my stepson, his real dad's in the military, so show and tell becomes difficult. There are things you can't bring to the school. They get worried. But I, yeah, It was no, hilarious. People, and it's just great looking at people's reactions. Oh, I love but, it. I love it. By the way, people are weirder than you think. They appreciate oh, dumb yeah. stuff like that. Well, the best was getting off on this floor. What did you say? to the, the, There's a guy that says, I know you from somewhere. You yeah, look so there was, this, there was this, this sweet black dude in the corner looks at me. He goes, I know you from somewhere. Are you on YouTube? And I go, I am on YouTube, but I, I act for a living. He goes, oh, yeah. And then, of course, I brought up, I go, I played a racist piece of shit in Black Klansman. He goes, that was it. And then I go, it's not the real me. Yeah. Well, so I guess the willingness to be this kind of open, I've read you say that it kind of probably comes from the fact that you're one of four. It's hard to get noticed in that circumstance. Um, Of course, you're fighting for stage time. uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) But were you a theater kid? Were you doing this stuff in school or when did it really become something you took seriously? I was like a theater kid who didn't hang out with the theater kids, if that makes sense. Like, I loved, I loved acting. I loved film. I, became, I think around the age of 12, I saw A Few Good Men mm-hmm. and As Good As It Gets. And, like, those movies were sort of what formed me from, like, loving comedy to wanting to discover drama mm-hmm. and discover good writing. So I kind of fell – like, I didn't know it at the time, but those two movies were written by James L. Brooks and Aaron Sorkin. Mm-hmm. Two of the greatest screenwriters of our time, if if maybe if any. Mm-hmm. So like, I didn't know it at the age of twelve, but writing was what was really grabbing me too. So by the time I was sixteen, I bought all these screenwriting books from Barnes and Noble, like the one hundred and one type stuff, writing for dummies. And I was doing theater. I did ten plays in high school, wow. and I started doing stand up comedy at like my church and at like local cafes or bars or whatever as a teenager. So. I sort of just overly immersed myself. It was improv, stand-up, screenwriting, plays, submitting headshots and resumes all over the place in the Midwest trying to find an agent. 
and doing some background extra work. I was a background actor in one or two things early on. Anything and, that was major? No, no. One, one movie was this this terrible indie film called Demoted with Sean Astin and Michael Varton. <laughs> but it was a treat to be on set, mm-hmm. and I was getting paid like 100 bucks a day <laughs> to do nothing. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I got to say, this is before selfie stuff, so it was like, it was nice to just chat with Michael and Sean and some uh-huh. of the people on set who were very generous with their time talking uh-huh. to the extras and stuff. And I remember Michael Varton got us an ice cream truck. And <laughs> like it was just, it was a lot of fun. And, and then, of course, my first job was this movie, Virginia, which didn't do very well. But I got to work on my first film. I got to work with Jennifer Connolly and Ed uh-huh. Harris and Amy Madigan and Toby Jones and Emma Roberts and Harrison. And this Gilbert. is Dustin Lance Black coming off of Milk, right? Yeah, he was coming off Milk. So there was also like the perception of like this movie is going to be nominated for a ton yes. of stuff because we got ed and dustin and jennifer right but um the film really really kind of died and, and didn't have much of a showing and it kind of bummed me out and broke my heart a little bit because i thought it was going to be this big thing and it wasn't but at the same time it gave me like nine or ten grand or something yeah and and i got to move to la and when people asked me what I had done, I was coming off a movie with Jennifer Connelly. Yeah. So, yeah. And in fact, you know, I think it speaks maybe to that you're an open and and sort of immediately likable guy that you were not supposed to have anything more than what would have been another like background part in that movie, right? And no. then how did that change? I just showed up to be, I was content with being an extra to some degree. You know, obviously I wanted a speaking part, but I didn't think that was likely. But I had seen Lance, and, you know, my, my mom kind of got us to start watching the Oscars when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. like early teens. Uh, it was a tradition to watch it every time it was on with the family. Mm-hmm. And and I had watched the Oscars that year, and Lance Black gave this beautiful speech that was really empowering, and he talked to gay youth and said, you know, God doesn't hate you. And I, as a Christian yeah. who loves the, the LGBTQ plus community, mm-hmm. I was so happy that someone said that, you know. Because I don't want to be labeled as some Westboro Baptist uh, nutsack, so <laughs> I uh, I was pretty happy to hear that. And I just told them I went, I saw him at the audition for the extras, and I just said, "Hey, man, congrats on the Oscar. Milk was amazing, and I love that part in your speech when you said that. It brought me to tears. I uh-huh. uh, just want to say congrats. Uh-huh. Just wanted to shake his hand. It was yeah. thirty forty seconds. Yeah. And he goes, "What's your name?" And he wrote it down, and he said, "There might be a part for you. We're going to bring you back." And a week later, sure enough, I did a cattle call with 12 other guys who looked as poorly put together <laughs> as I did. And uh, and then I came back. Oh, and then I thought this I haven't told in stories. Yeah. I thought it was all done because I was I was reading the trades at that as early as wow. like 20. In I was reading all Michigan? the trades. Yeah, I was reading Deadline and Variety, Hollywood Reporter yeah. every day. And. I went online and saw that they had cast Amy Madigan and Emma Roberts, and it said filming is underway. Uh, so I interpreted that as, oh, I auditioned. I never heard back. They started filming. They started casting. Right. I guess I'm not in it. Right. So I was like, oh, bummer. And then like a day or two later, when I'm fully emotionally resigned to right. not having the part, I get an email that says, can you come back tomorrow? Wow. And, and where was, was it shooting? Like, it was shooting on the west side of the state near, like, Grand Rapids. Kind oh, okay. So of it Grand wasn't, Haven. like, way uh, – you didn't have to, like – It was, like, a three-hour drive from Saginaw. So, like, it was uh, six hours round trip. My buddy Peter Hins and I went down. He drove me. I would, like, throw him some money, and he'd drive me because I didn't have – yeah. I still don't have a driver's license. I'm yeah. one of those weirdos. But um, I went and did the audition. As we left, I thanked them, and I walked out, and, and a PA comes up to me, and she goes – 
hey, stick around. Uh, we need some more information from you. And I'm thinking like, oh, I didn't fill out the sheet of paper right that they gave me. So I'm waiting, thinking they'll ask for my address or right. social security or some random thing. And Lance Black comes out two, three minutes later. He goes, so you got the part. And I go, can I hug you? And he goes, yeah, and I hugged him. And they had me fill out paperwork. And this was a more, a much more substantial part. Oh, yeah. I was number yeah. six on the call sheet. Yeah. And I was there for, you know, 10 days over the course of like three weeks. And and they were excited because they were like, we discovered you. We got, you know, like they, there was some pride there. That's awesome. And, uh, and on set, you know, I just did what I always do. I haven't changed my recipe that much. Um, I'm a better actor now, but I basically just did some techniques and did a lot of improvisation and... And it went really well, and I'm still proud of the work in that movie, albeit, you know, it kind of got snuffed. Yeah, so as you say, with the proceeds from that endeavor, you come out west, and if the math is correct, it's almost exactly 10 years ago, right? November 2009, I read. So could you ever have imagined how much stuff could happen in 10 years here? I mean, let's start there. I mean, I only did this because I thought I could do what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. I believed that from day one. Did I think it would happen now? No. Mm -hmm. I thought 10 years from now I might get a sideways type movie that's barbecue instead of wine. And, you know, me and and Chris Pine are driving through, you know, the Carolinas together as he figures out his love life and I stuff my face. I thought, so by the way, that movie can still get made for Yeah, let's make it happen, guys. Tell me that that can't get bought. Tell me that won't get distro roadside attractions. No, I no, I basically I thought this would happen. I didn't think yep. it would happen now, right. and I didn't know I would get to work with a bunch of my heroes. Right. You know, Sam Rockwell is a occupational hero for me, the same way that Phil Hoffman or Peter Sarsgaard or Michael Shannon. Are. And I know this is not just lip service because going back and reading the first interviews that were done with you, I name drop you name drop Sam Total. Rockwell among others. So that's that's really cool that yeah. that's happened. But I, love I, that. I guess the first big moment would have been if you were in Vancouver or something doing a TV a pro- lifetime pilot lifetime pilot yeah. okay and what's the call that you get there so once again the recurring theme for me internally is like I was content with what I was doing until something way better just showed up right, right. so I was with Eric Balfour, Dominic Monaghan my buddy uh, Jake Robinson Chelsea Gilligan all these people it was like it was like adult summer camp where we all were in Vancouver for three weeks filming. We're all sharing this ensemble, so none of us are lifting that heavy. We're working out together. We're getting dinner together. We're making each other breakfast and drinking together. Like it is adult summer camp. We're getting paid to go to. It was the greatest. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm just I'm on cloud nine already. Mm-hmm. I get an email that says you know I Tanya script on the blacklist. Allison Janney, Margot Robbie attached. Role of the guy. It's the guy who did Lars and the Real Girl. So like. It seemed a little too good to be true right out the gate. Mm-hmm. I kind of go, I'm not going to get this. They're going to give it to Josh Gad or Jonah Hill for sure. <laughs> so I audition, and it's a, it's definitely a cattle call. I walk in, I see child actors, UCB instructors. Like <laughs> I see every type of person, and I'm like, they don't know what they're doing right now. Right? You know, you can tell. But I, I was 13 pages off book. I memorized the crap out of it. Did they expect that of you, or you went over and above? Um, no, I mean, well, I think they expected some version of that professionalism, but I definitely, I drilled the hell out yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you could. And the well. night before, I got a little stoned and was like, <laughs> I'm going to chill out because I want this so bad, I need to chill out. Mm-hmm. And the next day, there was just sort of a residual calmness mm-hmm. where I was like, I was resigned. I didn't, I, didn't, I was like, I'm not going to get it. So I go in, had a lot of fun, did the thing. Mm-hmm. It's very professional, left. 
They call me back a day later and are like, we're bringing you back for a callback. I go, okay, well, callback insinuates there's going to be another guy or something. Who, who else is up for it? They right. go, the callback is just you. Wow. I go, what the hell do you mean the callback is just me? That's not a thing. <laughs> like, do I have it or don't I? Right. They go, there's an offer out. I go, well, what is it, Josh Gad? They go, it's Josh. He's dealing, <laughs> he, and he was, and I think he was dealing with, I think he was dealing with like scheduling conflicts with the Kenneth Branagh movie. Oh, or, or Frozen or something around. Yeah, there. yeah, I mean, he's a busy guy. He's yeah. brilliant. So I I was sort of just waiting to see what happened. And, of course, he was too busy, and they went with me. So. And let's just remind people, this is Eckhart, who's sort of the uh, buffoon with delusions of grandeur. Yeah, who was, the character, not me. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and this is a guy who, who was, in real life, basically the mastermind, if that's, I don't know if you can really use that word, of the attack on Kerrigan. But tell me about your reaction in the moment when you got that part. Where set the scene? How big was that? Um, I had been waiting about three weeks after the callback. I knew they liked me. I found out later the room was kind of split, where like half of I think half of the team internally was was hoping to get uh, more of a name, and the other half was like, "This is the guy. We don't need a name." So I I was headed to a concert with my buddy Josh Hoover, this guy who was on a uh, Walking Dead and halt and catch fire josh and i were headed to a concert for a buddy and i was i was waiting to get picked up by josh and i get a call and and the call is saying you booked the part this is your reps yeah my reps called this guy joel zadak and brian walsh they call me they're like we got you paid we're taking care of you we got a decent hotel you got the part it's going to be a movie that people actually see on you know they gave me this big speech and everybody was happy and I hung up and fell to my knees and cried and, and prayed and thanked God for what had happened. And I walked downstairs. I'm a total mess. My buddy Josh drives up in a convertible at the top down, blaring the music of our buddy, this guy, this band, The Rocket Summer. He's blaring this music, and he's like, what happened? You know, thinking something bad right. happened. And I go, I got the part. And he knew about it because he made a self-tape for the same For role. the same part. So, like, we're both celebrating, blaring this band, The Rocket Summer, while we drive to the concert. With the with the top down the convertible, it was a very memorable. Oh, that's great! Very memorable day. Yeah, it was crazy. So that movie, I remember being at the world premiere in Toronto, and it came oh, in. Oh, you were at Tiff. Oh, yeah, Princess of Wales. Right? Absolutely, yeah. and uh, it was quite a, a thing because I, just to remind, it's you know again a lot can change in just a few years, but at that time there weren't that many people that were thinking of Margot Robbie as a world-class actress. They knew no. she was a beautiful person who had done very a nice job, very charismatic, but but she killed it, and so did you, and so did Allison Janney, who ends up with an Oscar, and just this whole thing was, and it was, I think, the the movie that had come into the festival without distribution that then was like the hottest acquisition title and yeah. got a big deal with Neon, I it think. It was a split between Neon and 30 West. Yes, yes, yes. But what was cool, and I love that internal team, you know, if you ever get to interview some of those guys, the Stephen Rogers and Craig Gillespie yes. and Brian Unclos and Margot's husband, Tom, they were so freaking smart with how they played that. They knew they had something special. They weren't going to pawn it off to just anybody. People like Harvey wanted it, and then he, they made him go to the premiere, and he's like, you know, like a little gremlin <laughs> right, pissed off right. wanting the movie for himself. And right. then I heard he walked out like 30 minutes in. Oh. He was like falling asleep and then like stood up and, and abruptly left the theater. And uh, blew it. Yeah. And thank God for us. Yeah, you know, right. The timing was right. But no, I, I, I'm i so proud of that movie, and, and it stretched me as an actor, and I made friends for life, and Sebastian and Margo and the whole team, and then, of course, Craig. 
just reused me for his Disney movie, Cruella. Yes, that's yeah. which is 2021, I think I read. Is I believe so. Be. It's a ways off. A lot of, lot of special effects and stuff to, to kind of tie down before they put that up. And so it must have been around maybe directly as a result of the exposure and appreciation from Itania that Spike Lee enters the picture? Well, Spike didn't even see Itania when he cast me. Really? He knew nothing about it. So I, I had come back from TIFF on a Sunday. I was flying back, and I get an email that says, your agent, Brian Walsh, has bombarded like all these casting-type people and all these uh, agent people. Like yeah. Basically... He whipped together like a PDF of just like all the praise from coming out of TIFF. Yes. Just made a little packet and sent it off to a bunch of agents at the agency and then casting people. And they, like within 24 hours, they got me an audition for the lead baddie in Black Klansman, which yes. was played by my buddy. I didn't end up playing that role. But I went in on it. So I fly back on a Sunday. On a Tuesday, I'm sitting in the room of Spike Lee at uh, Kim Coleman's casting office and once again, similar to Itania, like I grilled the hell out of it, drilled mm -hmm. it, knew exactly what I was doing, had a bunch of improv planned, uh, which isn't really purest improv. I had planned it and written it, but yeah, like, right, right. it was ready to go. And I I went in there and, and did my thing. And, and Spike, I remember Sp Spike was like getting into it. I could see him on the edge of his seat when I was doing like the racist speech. Stuff. I've got to. Yeah, because I got to stop you. So you're, you're playing a KKK guy, auditioning yeah. as a KKK guy. In front of Spike Lee, even though, yeah, it's it's what he's asked you to do. That's got to be a little uncomfortable. I mean, it is and it isn't. He co-wrote it. Yeah, so I'm right. like, this guy's already signed <laughs> off on this thing. He's off it. He knows right. I'm playing a character. So I get in there and just um, I had this like extra part of the speech planned. The the guy who played it, Jasper Pakinen, was brilliant. And mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine anyone else playing it. But I was like really going for it. And at the end, I'm like, do I do this improv bit I wrote? Do I do it? And I could tell he was in a good mood. So I'm like, I'm just going to throw it in. <laughs> so at the end, I gave this whole spiel where I go, gentlemen, the uh, the good book says that the tongue is a sword, but we don't use swords anymore. No, we use uh, guns and bullets. Why, what was that little thing that, that fell uh, Goliath, but a little itty-bitty thing going at a great speed that thunked him on the head? That sounds like a bullet to me. <laughs> I did that, and Spike Spike jumps up and goes, "Say you're gonna bust those motherfuckers' heads in," and I go, "Well, well we're gonna bust those motherfuckers' heads in. We're, we're gonna paint the town red. It's just not gonna be our red." And I said that, and Spike goes, "Sit down, man." I sit down. He's like almost angry. He's so like happy that he thinks yeah. he found the guy. Uh, so he he you know we start talking movies. He writes my cell number down, which had never happened ever. Mm -hmm. And I walked out, he bro hugs me, and I walk out, and I told God, the second I walked out, mm -hmm. I said to God, I go, if I don't get this part, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. Because too many things yeah. went well, I'm yeah, like, yeah, dude, yeah. this has to happen. And of course, uh, Jasper got the role, but then they're like, do you want, you know, Spike wants you for the sidekick. Right. So. And in a way, you know, it, I guess it all it all worked out nicely, because you were great as, as this guy. And also, to make it further crazy... The movie's produced by Jordan Peele. You and Jordan, you've been in, you were in some Key and Peele sketches, right? Yeah, I go way back with Jordan and Keegan. So Joel Zadak used to manage uh, me and a bunch of these Mad TV guys. He still does some of them, I think. But, um, you know, when Mad TV got canceled, I was going to a small Christian school in Chicago writing screenplays like a madman. Like a college, university yeah, like at that point. Yeah, Concordia out. University, yeah. Oak Park River Forest, and... And Joel goes, Mad TV just got canceled. Do you want to like write a script for Ike or Jordan and Keegan? 
So they gave me a log line or like a one sheet of an idea, and I spent a year and a half writing a movie for Key and Peele that never wow. got made. It was called Hardly Working. It was about like black men trying to fight to get a promotion in this like advertising company. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was funny, but it, the story was never fully there. Uh, I think I was too stunted at that time to write it great. But um, I had a relationship with them. And then, you know, more so Jordan and I kicked around a sci-fi idea called The Last Ship. Jordan and I were going to write this sci-fi thing. And I went to his apartment a couple times and we, like, brainstormed somewhere on an, a laptop somewhere. I have, like, notes from me and Jordan Peele <laughs> trying to, you know, while a little stoned, like, yeah. trying to come up with, like, <laughs> comedy notes. But, uh but it never, you know, they they blew off like a rocket ship, and mm-hmm. and they threw me in a couple sketches, and I, I, I did see Jordan at the Gotham Awards, and he pulled me aside a couple years ago, and he goes, just so you know, this wasn't nepotism. Mm-hmm. He goes, I didn't even know you auditioned, mm-hmm. and you didn't text me to like ask for like help. That's awesome. he's like, I just looked at the cash sheet one day and bugged out in my office because I was like, holy shit, Paul's in the movie. That's you know? awesome. Well, and uh, I, Tanya, should have gotten a Best Picture nomination. Black Klansman did. Yeah. And then I guess after doing that, you were doing some some stuff for, t- I think, a TV pilot. And we should say you've done, you you know, over the, I guess, in between various things, you've been in some some major shows, Kingdom, Unbreakable, Kimmy Schmidt, Cobra Kai, other, other things. What I had read was that you're in Thailand doing the next Spike Lee project, The Five Bloods. And have an offer for a major TV project, right? Yeah, it was kind of crazy. There was, um, I had an offer for a TV show, a limited series, and it was the most money anyone had ever offered me. It was actually more than I deserved, Mm. to be perfectly honest. It was weird that they were making this offer, and it was a lot of money, and I was excited about it. And two days later, I get a call saying Clint wants you to, Clint wants you to be the co-lead in his new movie and I was like what (laughs) and they're like well it's not a real offer it's a verbal offer because the movie's at Fox Disney bought Fox and Clint only works at Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I'm like I have like three days they're making me mold this this stupid thing over where they're like you can either make a ton of money Mm -hmm. or you can take Clint at his word even though you've never met him were they they, pushing you in one direction or the other not at all my reps a testament to them they they were like do what you want to do we Mm -hmm. have our opinions Mm -hmm. and we'll give them if you want them Mm -hmm. And I just told them I, I was, it's, you know, I'm losing sleep. I was also sober at the time. Mm-hmm. I did 10 months sober. Wow. So while I'm in Thailand going nuts and I'm sober and I'm alone and I'm like barely sleeping mm-hmm. and I have insomnia, it's three in the morning and they call me because of the time difference and they're like, you have to make a decision. Uh, casting needs to know. The people what, that were, the TV people the TV were demanding. People, they're like, dude, you got to give us an answer. Yeah. We're, you know, we're going elsewhere. And I said, oh, my God, the Bible talks about fear and love. You can only operate out of one. The two can't abide, you know. Uh, uh, perfect love casts out fear. And I said, fear would tell me to take the money. Love would tell me to work with Eastwood. Tell him I pass. Wow. And uh, then I had to sit for three weeks, having made that decision, <laughs> waiting to see if the movie happened. And I got a bacterial infection on the last week. Ugh. I'm, like, puking between scenes. I end up going to the hospital for dehydration and stuff. And, and uh, I finally made it out of there. And... I think maybe a week later, I was on the Warner Brothers lot meeting Clint, and then a couple days later meeting Bobby Jewell and Watson Bryant, and and it was all sort of happening within this six-week time window. But Okay, so you had said earlier on when we talked uh, in this conversation that you you thought you were going to get to this point, but maybe not this fast. But when it's actually happening and you're sitting across from Clint Eastwood 
with the, you know, basically at this point, I, I guess it was still not a done deal, but the idea that you would be potentially starring number one on the call sheet, title character in a Clint Eastwood movie. Yeah. That must have been kind of surreal. I didn't. Very surreal. Yeah. It's still surreal, Scott. It's not like it's worn off, you know? I think people think my life has changed drastically. It hasn't. The The drastic thing was I got to work with Clint and Kathy right. and Sam and them. But, um, but you know, I didn't really have time to second guess. I didn't have time to be fearful. I kind of sort of like the fear and love thing. Yeah. I really had to, like, just man up and do it and hope that no one made a mistake here. So when I showed up to set... I acted like the most sort of elevated version of myself, not out of arrogance, but out of the poise it takes to try to command and help carry a film. I would say the one person who saw the realest version of me was Jessica Meyer, one of Clint's producers. She was sort of my ongoing confidant where when I was insecure or was, you know, had two nights of no sleep and I got to do a monologue or whatever, she was kind of the person who would come by and we'd have these private sidebar chats and she'd like, build me up to feel like I could keep going because there were times it was really scary, you know? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, talent-wise, there's no question, I think, from these earlier roles that you were immensely talented, but you'd never even been asked. You you know, there'd never been an an opportunity to have this central, substantial, leading role in any film, let alone... So the first time it's a Clint Eastwood film, that's got to... Did you feel a lot of pressure? And it's a good film, you know? It's different, too, if, like, Blumhouse calls you up and they're like, we want you to do the John Wayne Gacy biopic, and you're like, great, I have to do these deplorable things for no money and try to win an award for playing this odious, unredemptive piece of garbage. You know, this is much different. You're playing an American hero in this Shades of Grey story with Billy Ray and Clint Eastwood. I mean, that is the best version of how it could have happened to me literally yeah especially at a moment when you were in danger of being typecast as a villain totally you now get to play a a true hero yeah it was it was cool and there's still some consistencies of lower status or what people Mm -hmm. what people interpret to be simple-mindedness in a lot of my characters but um but you know i think i played it with enough layering and truth that that people will hopefully see through that and, and think it's more than just what meets the eye. But, um, but yeah, no, a lot of my favorite actors, Paul Giamatti, Phil Hoffman, John C. Riley, they started in these sort of character supporting roles. You know, I remember John C. and, uh, John C. and Gilbert Grape. Yeah. And I remember Paul Giamatti having like four lines in my best friend's wedding, you mm-hmm. know, like I was totally like knew my track. I knew my lane mm-hmm. and was waiting for the time to come where I could do something bigger like that. So one thing that, you know, it's it's just I've got to ask you because it's it's amazing to just read about it. These three most recent high profile parts have sort of sent you on a roller coaster of what was expected of you in terms of the weight of the character, the physicality, all of that. Can you just share what that takes in terms just w- maybe even if you you've talked about some figures it's just it's it's not the easiest thing to just throw on 35 or lose this or whatever it is so can you just take me through from I Tanya to Black Klansman to sure. Richard Jewell yeah it's awkward man it's a very emotional i mean i can talk about it very easily mm-hmm. but i just mean it's emotional in the sense that i've been overweight my whole life mm-hmm. all my heroes started dying the john candies and chris farleys and then even dramatically, Chris Penn, James Gandolfini, these guys have health problems. 
And I love that Jonah Hill lost weight. He looks amazing now, and I'm glad that he's going to be around for a long, long time because we need him to be. Mm-hmm. So this weight, losing weight became a priority for me in 2016. I joined uh, a group called Orange Theory Fitness, and uh, it wasn't culty. The people were, like, all in the industry, and they're all nice, and they all, like, were building me up and helping me stay, like, on track. And, mm-hmm. and I loved it, and I lost 35 pounds while putting on muscle. And anyone who's done this knows, like, Losing weight while putting on muscle is like a whole delicate thing. So that took about seven months. And I I think I got from like, I think I went from like 290 down to like 255. Wow. And right around the time I was doing the pilot, I got the Itania audition November of, you know, 2016. And I, I ended up, you know, when I booked it, I looked at photos and video footage of Sean Eckhart. And by the way, nobody pressured me to gain weight. Mm-hmm. No one, mm-hmm. to their testament. But I said, if I'm going to really do this, I got to do this. Because mm-hmm. this character doesn't feel good about himself deep down. Mm-hmm. I need to not. So I put, I put the 30, 30 of the pounds back on. Wow. Played Sean. Thought, the moment I rap, I'll take some of the money from the movie and get a personal trainer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Never really happened. And it took about another year and a half to two years to kind of get it off. And then, of course, while I was filming... For Spike in Thailand, I got back down to like 262, and I'm like, whoa, I'm seven pounds away from where I was with Orange Theory Fitness. Holy mm-hmm. cow, I'm going to make it. Mm-hmm. And then I booked Richard Jewell, and one of the first things Clint says is, you better, you got to pick up the donuts. You know, he's half kidding, half serious. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was right. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I shot back from 260 to like 285 or something mm-hmm. to play Richard. So I put on another 25 for that, and now I'm still <sighs> – still trying to take it off you know i'm still i'm probably down maybe seven pounds from richard jewel and i might be at like 278 but like god i want to i want to be healthy and i want to be around for a while so i can do some of these characters and you know if 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 i find out that jay roach or somebody's making a chris farley biopic (laughs) i'm taking that role no one's taking that from me that's mine from birth yeah that's mine but outside of something like that I really don't want to be a, that heavy the rest of my life, you know? Well, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's an amazing thing to have the ability to, I, you know, to go down the way you, you did for, you know, to, to get down to 262 again or whatever. Anyway, I don't, I don't mean to harp on it. I just think no, it's, I appreciate a, that. it's a, yeah. it's a, it's an amazing thing, but just a couple of last things working with Clint, you know, I, I understand he, everyone that's ever worked with him says he, he moves fast. He kind of knows what he wants generally few takes yet i've heard from from people on this project and and stuff you've said there there wasn't that much didn't feel rushed and there was actually time for improv yeah he i mean he more than any director i've ever worked with he invites improvisation as if it's as sacred as the text because he trusts his actors i happen to be pretty proficient in improvisation i've done it my whole life so so i showed up and and uh, an average thing would be, you know, he shoots the rehearsal. That's take one. Then the real take is take two. And then, you know, Steve Campanelli, his camera operator, Yves Belanger, would, would tell him, you know, that was great, but I think we can get it just slightly better with the pan or the, you know, it was always something technical. So we do about three takes average mm-hmm. with shooting the rehearsal, which rarely worked, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. But there were scenes like the diner scene at the end. Yeah. Where I demanded, I was like, I, I need more of these. I need like nine of these. So, and you have to break down on each one? Yeah, and I didn't do it perfectly in each one, you yeah. know? Like there, there's a reason we did nine. Clint claims that the one he used with me eating the donut, he claims that was the first take. Mm. 
but I don't know if that's revisionist <laughs> history or not. I'd have to ask Joel Cox, I think, his editor. But, um, but you know, I told them a couple times, and I said it very seriously because I, I knew I was the lead of a Warner Brothers movie that was a true story with Clint Eastwood. Uh-huh. It's like, I can't F this up. I can't. I need you guys to give me some latitude on how uh-huh. many takes I have uh-huh. so that I make sure that we're getting it because uh-huh. I've never done this before uh-huh. to that degree. Uh-huh. Was the scene in the diner the toughest or was there – I mean you have some uh, – there's the the one just where you realize in the interrogation that they're screwing with you. Sure. Or the taped supposedly PSA and then you realize they're screwing with you. Which one did you find to be the toughest? The toughest was for sure when, when Sam says to me, you know, you got to stick up for yourself. Do you know they're making fun of you? And I kick the coffee table and I go, I know that, and I walk away. Yeah. And I kind of pace and grab the cookie from the cookie jar. Yeah. That scene was so tough because I didn't know. I was kind of lost that day, and I didn't know where we were tonally. Mm-hmm. And I thought, is are we going too big with this? Does it feel authentic? Is it too much? Should we do an abbreviated version of this? We kind of did every every possible version, which is good for the editor but bad for the actor because the actor is going, do I know what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. But I remember clearly grabbing Steve Campanelli, the camera op, and saying, I'm going to break that cookie jar. So I said, we don't have more. We only have one. So I said, on the last take, make sure you tilt down and get me ramming the lid out of anger. Um, So that was like, I was glad the way it turned out. But the day we shot it, I was ready to walk off set. I was so steamed and and insecure. Mm -hmm. Last question is just this. The movie, people, people, once it's out in the world, people... Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has, you know, something to say. And there are certain things that obviously are always beyond anyone's control, whatever, how many people go, what they do at the box office. But if there's one thing that everyone's agreed on about this movie, it's that you are terrific. And that is reflected in the reviews. It's the A cinema score from people who have gone to see it. And most recently, it's the National Board of Review Award for Best Breakthrough Performance. So I just wonder... You know, 10 years after showing up in this town to be going through this week where, you know, I, I can't drive from my office to my home without seeing you two or three <laughs> times on, on billboards and, and bus Sorry stops and everything. That. No, Sorry it's, uh, it's nice. I say, hey, good to see Paul. But uh, to be in this moment where that's happening, where you probably have more opportunity to sort of decide what you want to do next than you've had in the past, just put us in your headspace. Thanks for saying all that. Um, you know, I wanna I wanna keep doing really good work. Selfishly, I'd like to work with the Catherine Bigelows and Adam McKay's and Barry Jenkins. Like, it'd be fun to have a murderous row of directors on the resume. But also, I don't know how realistic that is. I think, I think the realistic thing is trying to be good in every part you get. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so my my focus isn't on being a star. Or being a celebrity, I don't think that really applies to me. I think the focus is making sure I'm a really good actor and that I make the cast and crew feel really good while we're doing the work. That's kind of the priority. But yeah, no, I'm looking for my next thing. I'm reading scripts. I'm taking meetings. I'm, you know, I'm trying to find what's up the pike. Right now, I don't have anything. So, uh, yeah, man. Well, I'm uh, excited for it's you. Wide open. You did a great job, and thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, dude. God bless you. You're awesome. You too. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app of choice 
and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out all of the other shows that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network. Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sons' Hollywood Remixed, Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Josh Wiggler's Series Regular, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.